Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hey, everyone. Welcome to a very special episode 59 of the Michigan UFO Sightings and Paranormal Encounters podcast. What we've decided to do is reissue an interview we did with Michael Schratt back on March 9th, 2022, as our season two opener, Michael Schratt came on. At that point, it was episode 26, and we did a presentation with him um, in an interview It was a great interview, and we think now more than ever, the information that was um, released at that time is now more relevant than ever. So we're reissuing this, and also since I was traveling this week, coming back from the Cosmic Summit, I seem to have uh, become sick probably sinus issues or picked up something from the airport or flying with people in planes. You know how that goes. So I am not at 100% and just will not be able to do a live show tonight. So we figured this was probably one of the better things we could do. And also, this gives everybody an opportunity to see the presentation that Michael Schreck gave to Michelle and I. Um, when we interviewed him live. So once again, we're sorry for not being live with you tonight. We will be watching uh, the premiere of this with you. But kick back, have your favorite drink, relax, and watch this amazing presentation from Michael Schratt as episode 59 of the Michigan UFO Sightings and Paranormal Encounters podcast. And if you happen to be listening to this podcast, you can head on over to our YouTube channel, Michigan UFO Sightings and Paranormal Encounters podcast, and watch the presentation. I highly recommend it. And while you're there, please remember to like, share, and subscribe to our YouTube channel. And don't forget to leave a comment. We really like hearing from you guys. Thank you very much, and now enjoy Michael Schratt and his presentation. Welcome to the Michigan UFO Sightings and Paranormal Encounters podcast, where we explore the unexplained and mysterious phenomena that have occurred throughout the state of Michigan and beyond. From UFO sightings to ghostly encounters, we delve deep into the stories, the evidence, and the theories behind these strange events. We are your hosts. I'm Michelle. And I'm Wayne. We are an educator duo that after an encounter with a triangular UFO in 2018 in Michigan, we decided to investigate UFOs and the paranormal. 
In this podcast, we will be speaking with eyewitnesses, experts, and researchers to uncover the truth about some of the most intriguing cases of paranormal activity in and around Michigan. Our goal is not to convince anyone of the existence of these phenomena, but rather to provide a platform for discussion and exploration. So buckle up and join us on this journey down the paranormal rabbit hole on an escalator. All right, ladies and gentlemen, I am extremely excited to announce that our season opener, Michael Schrett, is here with us today. And I can't think of a better person to help us open up season two of our podcast. So, Michael, thank you for joining us and welcome. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. Absolutely. Awesome. Uh, well, you know, our audience, we focus a lot of stuff on Michigan, but as we've been finding out, the Michigan UFOs and things that we've been talking with people about in our own experience seems to be happening worldwide uh, a lot, especially when I see that our audience has a very diverse demographic of downloads. And, you know, surprisingly enough, I was shocked that so many people are interested in this topic that they listen to us in over, what is it now, Michelle, 65? No, it's more than that. It's like 65 or 68 countries at this point that we're getting downloads. And I'm like, well, we're just a little Michigan podcast trying to figure out answers. And, and this thing has blown up. So for our audience and even for us that, you know, we've only been delving into this for a year. Can you give us a little bit of background on you, how uh, you got interested in, um, and, and we will talk to your bio a little bit. Uh, you're interested in basically what aeronautic history, I think is, yeah, is what so, you want to call that. So yeah, I'm a, I'm a private pilot, military aerospace historian. And how this all started for me is my dad used to take me when I was like six years old to a place called Victory Air Museum. And this was outside the, you could call it the suburbs of Chicago. And what they had there was a bunch of these World War II aircraft that were dilapidated, disrepair. They were left for dead. Uh, you know, the windows were cracked. The paint was, you know, chipped and it had up in the wheel wells, there was growing weeds and everything. And it just had this ghostly appeal that always, it had sort of a haunting aura about it. That's what started my love and crusade for aviation. And just started to go to the Oshkosh Air Show and you know, really developed a, a love of aviation. And then things just kind of took off from there, uh, living near the area of QFOS, which is Center for UFO Studies. Uh, I used to go there every Sunday and just start going through all 60,000 cases. And it was a matter of getting over there, pulling open the file cabinet, pulling out the manila folder. And I kind of explained that the criteria I used was if it had a picture, drawing, illustration, a three-page report, and a flight path report, then I would pull that file, create a SOLIDWORKS model of it, and then do an AutoCAD version. And then if it was something that was beyond my capability, I would commission the artwork to try to make these cases come alive. So in a nutshell, that's the background. Awesome. Now, was there something that, 
I mean, that's quite a jump going from being interested in aviation and hanging out with your dad since you were six years old and, and becoming a private pilot and things like that. I was, I kind of followed right in your same kind of footsteps when I was a kid. My dad was a airline pilot for United, really? uh, wow. used to pick me up as a small kid. I, I mean, my first memories are in a Piper Cherokee and a Cessna 172. Okay. So eventually, you know, I got into flying general aviation as well. Wow. And, uh, Great. Yeah. Um, now I did not continue with it because of the cost at the time, <laughs> you know, it, it, that's one thing that gets people, if you're not prepared to just go all out and, you know, be bankrolled and have a lot of money set aside to invest in flying, um, especially getting your license and everything. I was in the process of raising a family and everything else. And, you know, it just did not, I, I got to solo, but you know, I didn't finish with my license or anything, but anyways, was there something that made you go from that jump of being interested in aviation and now you're making this jump into UFO research? Sure. Well, to, to get back to your point about what you were speaking about there, have you heard the old saying within aviation? Have you heard the old saying? Uh, I've heard a lot of, uh, you know, sayings like, you know, for red, you're dead, you know, kind of a okay. thing when, you, when you're trying to land. Uh, sure. Which, which okay, one are so you talking about? There, yeah, there's an old saying in aviation. If God meant for man to fly, he would have given him more money. So. <laughs> well, there you go. There yep. you go. And that's why yep. these big corporations can get away with it. They got more money. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Well, the subject of UFOs and, and interesting aircraft, they kind of bleed together. And when you're looking at the Leonard Stringfield cases, and we can talk about a couple of them today, where you, know, you have military pilots, you have commercial airline pilots, you have air traffic controllers, astronauts, cosmonauts, high-level military brass, who claims to have been first-hand witnesses to crash retrievals, bodies, uh, the motion picture film reels, the black and white glossies being kept in a vault. That, to me, that's the most powerful evidence that we're ever going to come across because that's what it's going to take to push this field forward. Anything less that we're just spinning our wheels. We, we're at a point now in ufology that another sighting of lights in the sky isn't going to do anyone any good. We have got to get to that physical evidence portion where it's released as a united coalition to you know everybody worldwide, internet, global at the same time. Then we might get somewhere. Anything less than that, I, I just think we're spinning our wheels. So that's kind of how it crossed over into that area. Now, what about like uh, the claims of there being recovered materials? It's been hinted at quite a bit in your investigations of UFOs, UAPs, whatever at this point. Right. What what kind of uh, like, I don't want to say conclusion because I hate using that word conclusion in anything, especially in science, you know, scientific research. Uh Kind of what are your findings right now, I guess, would be the best way to ask. Okay, well, I think the, the best way I can do that is I'm going to share my screen here, if you're okay with that. Yep. And I'll see if I can, uh, let's see, host, host disabled participant sharing screen. Oh. Hmm. All right, okay. how do I do that? Um, let's see, security, maybe. Uh, participants allow, part ah, here we go. Okay, so I'll go here. There we go. So I click on, click 
click on that share. And uh, just real quick for our audience that yeah. listens to our audio podcast, if you want to see these images, I will put them into our YouTube uh, upload or conversion of uh, this audio podcast into a video, and I will put the images in the background so that people can see what we're talking about. Oh, that's great. Yep, that's it. All right. Uh, so are you seeing this at all? Yes, yes, absolutely. You are seeing it. Okay, so I'm going to go slideshow from beginning. And so now I'm going to zip down here so that you can get this full screen. That's going to be the, the best way to do this. And then if you want to, you can assemble these later when I drop you the JPEGs. So uh, okay, let me perfect. get right over to this area right about, we need to be about right here. You were talking about the the debris. Okay, so the, the best way to describe this, uh, to answer your question, I'm going to set this up now. This is December 1963, and the source for this is the 65 three-ring binders within the Leonard Springfield collection that are stored at Lunkin Airport in Cincinnati, which is headquarters for MUFON. That's the source material for this so that people can verify this on their own. Like everything we talk about, it's going to be reference, documentation, paperwork to back it up so people can independently check this out on their own. And what I think is interesting about this case, and this is one of the Leonard Stringfield cases, and it's described in detail. I spoke to the gentleman who actually interviewed the Marine who was part of this. So this is December, 1963, it's literally days after Kennedy was assassinated. So my question, as I was going through this case, is what did President Kennedy know? When did he know it and who did he tell? Because theoretically, this could have involved Kennedy because whatever this thing was, it could have been there for a couple of weeks, which would have pushed it back prior to November 22nd. So it's, it's a possibility. Okay, so what happened here is this U.S. Marine is called at the dead of night, and he's based at Cherry Point, North Carolina, at the air station for Marines there, Cherry Point, North Carolina. And he's told to, to board a cargo plane that doesn't have any windows. So he gets on this plane and he flies three hours from Cherry Point, North Carolina, in a direction that he didn't know to a location that he didn't know. They never told him. It could have been an Air Force facility, Army facility. It could have been a Navy facility. We don't know. And I don't think he knew. So they land at this facility and then they open up these hangar doors and what do they see in the hangar? They see this 40-foot diameter dish-shaped craft. It's 15 feet tall. It has this chrome-polished exterior. There's nine elliptically shaped windows wrapped around the outer circumference of the craft. Each of these windows is kind of smoke-colored glass configuration, and it's got this opaque quality to it. So he said that when you look through it, you couldn't see inside. So it had the smoke quality to the glass, and there was a one-inch lip between the outer surface of the skin itself of the craft and then the outer portion of the smoke colored glass. And he made very detailed notes and sketches of what that looked like. There, there was a definite lip there. It wasn't a completely integrated seam, uh, seamless part there. There was a lip on, on the walls of these um, windows. Then he said on the bottom of this thing, there was a very faint outline of a hatch or opening. And he mentioned that this, this seam was so integrated into the bottom of the craft, you could not put a razor blade into the seam of this thing. Now, that's how fully integrated it was. 
If you look at the bottom of this drawing that I put together here, you'll see these red dots and they're, they're primarily along the seam of where this is the attempted points of entry. They were trying to get into this craft back in December, 1963. And what, they, what this Marine said is they tried three different methods. Uh, number one, they had diamond tip drill bits and that failed. <laughs> then they tried acetylene torches, that failed. Then he said, and I'm gonna go ahead and move on to the next slide here. By the way, this whole thing was propped up on scaffolding and they built a catwalk around this thing so that these lab coat technicians could walk around this thing. And he said that the last thing they tried is after the acetylene torches failed, they brought in two 18 wheeler tractor trailers that had these very high powered electrical generators on top. And they had these three inch gauge cables that went from the 18 wheeler tractor trailers inside this hangar. And they were using a laser device on this craft. And I'll go ahead and move forward here. And you can see, this is what it looked like inside the hangar. Here's the craft. And you can see they're using a laser on this. Now, when they moved the laser away, it was warm to the touch, but had no effect whatsoever. So this is back in December, 1963. There was a white circle painted on the floor directly below this craft. And his job as this kind of security Marine because he was a sergeant at the time, was to basically shoot to kill anyone who wasn't authorized to break that ring on, on the concrete. And he had to stop an Air Force personnel and the Secretary of the Navy was approaching the circle and almost got shot for breaching that circle. And that's how critical this was. So as far as I know, now the, he was in uh, basically guarding this craft for about two weeks. And there was one time that he was left alone with this craft all by himself. And he had one of these small German Minox cameras and he actually snapped a photograph of this thing, if you can believe that. Uh, unfortunately, that photograph was lost in a flood back in 1983. And so we were this close of getting some really good evidence on a retrieval where there was a, a, a massive uh, scientific contingent that were trying to breach the hull of this thing. Now, the last day that he was there, that he said he saw it, when he walked into the hangar, it was already gone off the scaffolding. They had removed it and they were putting it on a flatbed truck. They were putting a tarp on top of the craft and then chains over the tarp and then moving it to the next location. And that location could either be Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, Norton Air Force Base, McGill Air Force Base, uh, Langley, Virginia, or Eglin Air Force Base. So these are kind of the, the places where they keep these things. So in a nutshell, that's the December 1963 Marine case. Okay, so I'm looking at this thing. And to me, and I don't know, Michelle, if you agree with me, do you think if a couple of F-18s saw this thing flying in the air, pulling some strange maneuvers that would look like a tic-tac to them? Because that looks like the tic-tac craft. Like if, if. At the right viewing could, perspective. Yeah, sure. Yeah. I mean, because my brain is, is putting that in 3D and I'm, I'm looking at a, a sil not cylindrical it's saucer shaped but it's got a lot of depth to it yeah it's it was a fat hamburger shaped saucer yes. yeah mm -hmm. it's yep. the best way to describe it yeah yep. now um did the marine have any ideas on 
what this thing might have been made out of. Did he hear anybody talking? Did he get all, any kind of clues? Yeah, all he said is that he heard jargon from, this is the way he described it. He heard jargon from the scientists about bodies and that there was, they, they spoke in code. This is a little vague, but going over the notes that I was given uh, from the gentleman who interviewed this Marine, um, I got copies of his notes where they laid this thing out. And he said that they spoke in a jargon in code. And then the word Mary equals alien. And I don't think I've heard that anywhere else. But apparently when these scientists were talking, they used the word Mary to associate with some type of alien being out. Uh, he said that they had knowledge of three bodies that were recovered. And that's been confirmed by another gentleman who we can get into later. But, you know, it's could this really be true? Right. It sounds fantastic, but you know, where is the physical evidence to prove this? Well, um, if if this indeed happened in '63, let right. let's just go there. When were you made privy of this information here? That, I that was this is what privy, yeah, I was made privy to this back in 2013. When I went through the Leonard Stringfield collection, I went through all 65 binders. It took three days to get through it. And it was a strange phenomenon. I, I've never had minutes or hours pass like minutes before. I mean, I literally, it was like a, a strange time warp. Sure. Hours pass like minutes going through this material. And this case was in that, was in that and there was a rough sketch there. And uh, there was a little, a name associated with it. And I said, oh, I've got to find out who this is. Who was the person that interviewed this Marine? So I tracked him down. We've been corresponding for, I don't know, it's been over 10 years now. And basically, well, just about 10 years. And I've, I've met with him uh, multiple times. I interviewed him on tape for two hours. He laid out the entire thing. He actually said that back in the 60s, this subject matter was a lot more open than it is now. Now, we're making some progress here, but it was a lot more open. And I think the general public was a little bit more open to it. But again, now we're starting to get even more open to it. So we could be looking at a, a window of opportunity where they could start dislodging some of this, basically. Yeah. And and um, when you were going through those binders, was it was it um, how do I want to say was it clear that these binders were from the 60s? I mean, was the paper a little bit deteriorated and things like that? I mean, mm, no, the. The three ring binders were vintage 86 timeframe, 83 to 86. Okay. Uh, Stringfield passed away in 94. So this, these were the dictation binders. And this case was, was definitely in there. And it's the second I started reading about this and there were some rough sketches, I just, I just said, I've got to follow up on this. I've got to find out if we can dig out any more information. I mean, this, this guy took a photograph of this thing. He guarded yeah. it for a few weeks and it was literally a couple of weeks after Kennedy was assassinated. And he said that on the last day he was there, they were moving it to the next location, which means that this could have been there back prior to Kennedy being assassinated. And that, if you extrapolate that, Kennedy may have been aware of this. Oh, I, I'm guessing that if they did a retrieval back then with without the high technology and stuff that we're dealing with today and in and the possible, you know, threat or possible, um, like, experience of having these UFOs and UAPs coming down, 
uh, where now you had like a tip and, and all of these programs that were very top secret, they probably didn't have a protocol or, you know, in place for dealing with this. And they probably would brief the president. I would think, especially with the Cuban missile crisis and the Russians, you know, doing what they were doing. Uh, well, we, we know that Kennedy was good friends with James Forstall and Forstall was very well read into this subject. So, you know, that those two gentlemen talked and shared secrets together. So, uh, I'm convinced that Kennedy knew quite a bit about it and he may have wanted to come forward with it. So if he saw something like this, he would have been in a position to say something. But I don't know, the, the religious implications, the utility implications, the financial implications, it's debatable what kind of an impact that would have had. See, and, and the reason I'm asking you about this particular craft as I see this and think about the Tic Tac and all of that. The fact that these notes were done in 86 time frame. Correct. This is long before the Nimitz encounter and oh, the yeah. videos and all that, which to me gives it some credibility that this could be one of those. I, I, I swear I'm looking at it. I'm, th I'm thinking that's what this is. And this was done before anybody knew you know, years before the Nimitz, you know, and of course, all of, of course. that. Yeah. So let, let's wow. move on here and we'll see if we can pin this down a little bit further here. Uh, this is an illustration that I commissioned Jose Sanchez to do for me. And it shows you the lab coat technicians trying to drill on the seam of the entry hatch here. And, you know, they're not, they're not getting anywhere. The diamonds just chipping off this thing and they can't, I don't even know today if they ever got inside. We don't even know. I mean, it was like completely, they could not get into this craft no matter what they did. So it's debatable, uh, even all these years later, if they ever got inside. What did they well, Was there bodies? About? Did you say there was bodies or was well, that he, just a rumor? He, he had heard information about bodies recovered. Now, I don't know if it was associated with this retrieval, but he said that um, he had heard water cooler talk about bodies and that he had information about other crash retrievals. That's okay. exactly okay. precisely what he said. So this is uh, by Jose Sanchez. And then I ran across this interesting story here. This is four-star Major General Melvin F. McNichol. He was base commander at Tinker Air Force Base, Oklahoma. He was friends with Charlotte Mann, who was associated with the 1941 Cape Girardeau crash retrieval. There's a whole backstory on that. So these two were friends for years. And... Charlotte Mann basically talked to the general and said, you know, uh, we've been friends for a long time. Why haven't you told me anything about UFOs? I mean, are you still my friend? You, you haven't said anything. You're in a position to probably know about this. And so this general turns to Charlotte Mann and he says, Charlotte, if you ever repeat what I'm about to tell you, I'll deny it and it could end my career. And what he told her was very interesting. Uh, number one, he walked around a UFO that was propped up on scaffolding. Now, where have we just heard this? <laughs> Number two, the UFO was located in the West. If you take a plane and you fly three hours from Cherry Point, North Carolina, that technically puts you in the West. It's a stretch, but you're there. Three, and then number three, bodies were recovered and one was still alive. This is almost essentially identical to what the Marine had told Leonard Stringfield and told the gentleman that I interviewed as well. So 
here we've got two people. I'm sure they didn't know any, each other. And they're talking about the same thing. When I heard this about Melvin McNichol, I said, boom, I got it. I got it. Now I've got two separate sources verifying the same thing. He talks about a scaffolding and he walked around a catwalk. This is exactly what the Marine described. Yeah, that's that's definitely a corrob- corroboration yes, of evidence. It, right is. it definitely is. It definitely now, and, you know, This isn't the only one. I mean, certainly you've got You've got uh, Cape Girardeau, you've got Aztec, you've got Kingman, you've got Roswell, you've got the one we just discovered. You also have Jackie Gleason as well. So that may have been some of the other ones that he was mentioning. Um, Have you been able to piece together where this thing might have been taken? I mean, based on, you know, what, three hours from North Carolina and this guy saying in the West? It could, we could be talking about an island too. It could be something perhaps near the Bahamas. Uh, he didn't know. He was never told. So it's it's difficult to pin down where this was. But what you can rest assured that one way they keep this under wraps is they just keep moving these things from one place to the other. They compartmentalize it and they don't let anything stay in one place stagnant. They just keep on moving so that you can't track this. I mean, it makes sense. Yeah. It makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. All right, that's awesome. Yeah, that that's when you when you get those pieces that come together like that. Uh, man, yes, that, that's that's, exactly that's a light bulb moment. That's that's how it hit me. That's how it hit me because this gentleman is describing word for word what this marine had talked about in '63. So it, it just tracked. It tracked perfectly. Did the marine ever say why he was picked for this duty? I'm all the uh, way over a, North He Carolina. had a background in weapons test, test, uh, testing, and he was given an interim security clearance for this job specifically. Okay. Yep. Yeah. I was going to say, there's lots of Marines out there that can do guard duty. I mean, they're good at it. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> so, you know, especially if you tell them if anything crosses the white circle, shoot yeah. it. That's yeah. right. Yeah. Here, here is the uh, the Daily Oklahoma, July eleventh, nineteen eighty six. Just to let people know that this is a real guy. He really was commander at Tinker Air Force Base. He was involved. He did know Charlotte Mann. Um, and then again, these are the questions I want to know: Is what did President Kennedy know about UFOs? When did he know it? And who did he tell? That's my question. Did yeah. it have anything to do with his assassination? It's a very good question. Yeah, you know. Yeah, I mean, they what, have they determined like why he was assassinated? Just what it was just the lone gunman, or you know, what was really going on there? Right, right. You know, or or is it uh, you know the simplest explanation is the right explanation, and this guy was nuts and just wanted to kill President Kennedy? I mean, I don't, man, I don't know. I I, I think Kennedy probably knew something. Well. He didn't even have to see this craft to know something since he was very good friends with James Forstall. I'm sure right. they traded secrets. I mean, you can bet on it. They were they were good friends. So absolutely, Kennedy knew something. Now, I don't know if he got to see this craft. He may have seen another one. Difficult to say. But the, the implications of what this would mean for the utilities industry is just earth shattering. So you could see that there would have been a reason to intervene there. If you could come up with a craft that it doesn't have any visible means of propulsion, it doesn't have any ailerons, it doesn't have any propellers, it doesn't have any fins or wings or vertical, nothing like that. 
and it's got a brand new propulsion system and it makes internal combustion engines obsolete overnight. We don't, we don't need coal fire plants anymore. We don't need nuclear power plants anymore. We don't need windmill farms anymore. Boom, in one second, you've just wiped out a multi-trillion dollar industry. That might've been a reason uh, we yeah, lost that might, that might make a lot of people upset. Correct. Correct. <laughs> That's a lot of people out of work and a lot of money gone. Yep. You know, we're, we're talking about the crown jewels now. This subject right. matter was classified higher than the atomic bomb during World War II. So now you're playing with the big boys here. This, you know, we got the crown jewels here. This is, the, they're not going to let this go easily. And you, you won't read about it in your newspaper. They're never going to talk about, oh, here's a crash retrieval and here are all the details. Because a lot of people say, if this is really true, why, why haven't we read about it in our newspaper? That's the whole point of it. You won't hear about it. He won't hear about it. Yeah. Now, uh, just jumping back to that craft real quick, did the Marine sure. happen to say the scaffolding that they built, Did was it a very strong scaffolding or was this thing like really light? Because I have a well, kind of a theory on on how these things are. I mean, I'm a science teacher. I'm into science. I, I, I think about these things and I have a very smart coworker. Uh, that we talk about these things and, and the guy is quite amazing when it comes to physics and chemistry and we're just little right. science teachers off in, you know, downtown Detroit and uh, we were talking about these and, and I had a theory about these things being very, very, very light so that their mass would not have, you, you know, would not be affected, exactly. their frequency would not be uh, I, I don't know. I'm still, I'm still throwing it around in my head, but I'm thinking if they were a very light craft and they could reduce their mass by re, like reducing their temperature to almost absolute zero, you could reduce your mass quite a bit. Very well done. Yeah, very well done. Now, what's interesting is the gentleman who interviewed this Marine he also sent me some of the original sketches from the Marine that he drew personally. So we, we've got that within the historical archive. Now to, to answer your question, the sketches from the Marine show a very spindly and thin light scaffolding around the craft. I mean, extremely stick figure type thing. Yeah. It wasn't anything robust. I think- I don't what see we any here, landing gear. Uh, no landing gear whatsoever. No, absolutely. It, this thing looked like a seamless burger is the best way to describe it. <laughs> a very seam. It, it's not, it's not even interesting. It's very antiseptically sterile looking actually, you know? Yeah. No, no, no bolts, no rivets, virtually no seams whatsoever. This thing was fully integrated. Well, you know, it's like, I know uh, Lou Elizondo and I can't wait to get him on the podcast. Hopefully he'll be coming on at some point here. And I want to talk to him because, you know, a lot of this stuff has been talked about with anti-gravitics and, you know, being able, and in my mind, the only way you can get rid of uh, uh, the effect of gravity is trying to reduce your mass to zero so that the body does, you know, their the gravitational pull, there's no attraction. Right. Um, right. So I, I don't, I don't know. Cause I was no. trying to look at like the FLIR, like the FLIR cameras and, and, you know, the pictures, you know, are these things really cold? If they're really cold, if they're made out of some type of a aluminum isotope that they can cool somehow really, really cold and drop their mass, then they don't need a lot of thrust to move around. 
I think you're onto something there. Yeah, I think you're onto something there. Well, that's what my coworker was saying. And he was like, you might want to stop talking about it. Well, here, I'm just, I'm putting it out there right now. <laughs> Let's, uh, we'll, we'll do another case here really quickly. Now, this is a, this is my favorite case, uh, basically, of Project Blue Book cases. This is an official U.S. Air Force Project Blue Book case. And you can verify this on if you go to the, uh, National Archives in Washington, D.C. You can pull up this case. I've got the index card. This is March 23rd, 1966, Temple, Oklahoma. And this involves a man by the name of Eddie Laxon. He was an electrical engineer at Shepard Air Force Base. And it's uh, about 5.03 in the morning, so it's still dark out. The sun is just coming up, so there's a little bit of twilight there. And he's just driving down the road to work. And all of a sudden, his headlights illuminate what could only be described as a large bowling pin that's tipped over on its side, blocking the road. It's the best way to describe it. This is picture a bowling pin, but huge. And uh, we'll, we'll start at the beginning here. On the right side of the craft, and this is the way it was described in the report, there was a bubble transparent canopy that looked like it was ripped off a B-26 bomber for World War II. The whole thing was sitting on these pogo landing gear legs that looked like something from the Apollo program. And then he said that there were two beaming spotlights shining down. There was two beaming spotlights shining forward. And then aft of the forward landing gear legs, there was an air stair door with a man standing right next to it. Now, he described him as about 5'10", maybe 160 pounds. He was a man. He wasn't an alien. He wasn't an extraterrestrial. He was wearing two-piece military green fatigues. He had a baseball cap with the bill turned up. He was flashing a, a flashlight near the bottom of the air stair door like he was looking at something. Now, above him, there was a stinger or spire that swept back toward the aft end of the craft. And at the end of the spire or stinger, there was about an eight-inch diameter ball. Now, below this stinger, there was an illuminated window that was about three and a half feet in diameter that was basically divided into four equal pie segments. Now, just about a foot to two feet aft of that window, there was a series of black letters. Now, this was written in black lettering, and it read vertically from top to bottom, TL4768 was written on the side of the craft, TL4768. At the very end of this craft, there were some very small flight controls that appeared to be way too small for anything aerodynamically, you know, having to do with flight. Now, as soon as this, whoever this military man was with the flashlight, as soon as he saw that he was being watched by Eddie Laxon, he scurried up this air stair door, he slammed the thing shut. Then, and this is extremely important, there was a high-pitched drilling noise. And the whole thing levitated off the ground. Remember, this is 1966, three years before Apollo 11. My question is, was Neil Armstrong briefed on this technology? This didn't have any liquid rockets in it whatsoever. So this thing lifts off the ground, sits there for about 30 seconds, hovering in midair, and all of a sudden takes off like a spark on a grinding wheel at something like 770 miles an hour, almost at sea level, and creates no sonic boom whatsoever. So he's shocked and he's surprised. He gets back in his car. He drives down the road about a half a mile and he sees a truck driver pull off to the side of the road. The driver's side door is open and this truck driver is standing on the floorboards of his truck. 
And when Eddie Laxon came up to him, he said, are you okay? Do you need some help? And he described seeing the identical craft that Eddie Laxon had seen like a minute prior to. So we have two independent confirming uh, accounts of this. Now we'll move forward here. What you're looking at now is the original sketch from the witness himself. This is the original sketch. It's pretty rough. But if you look at the top here, there's a dimension 75 feet across. And then on the right hand side, there's another dimension eight feet across. And if you look just aft of that circular window, you can see very faintly TL4768 written on the side of the craft. I mean, it's rough. So I spent a day going through all the information from Blue Book, from David Marler collection, from the newspaper clipping. And I went ahead and created this uh, updated and revised drawing that shows you what this thing looks like. This is a, a lot more to scale now. And he also said that this man in the two-piece military green fatigues with the baseball cap who was holding this flashlight, he said that he had ranking insignias on his arm near his elbow, like these naval ranking insignias. He saw that on this guy's uniform or whatever he was wearing and uh, just thought it was interesting. So if you look at all this put together, it's just screaming a man-made technology. Yeah, it absolutely um also i i looked over to michelle and i said michelle look at the date on this and it was march 23rd 1966 That's right. and there was something going on here in march in april oh the sightings and dexter the the uh -huh. huge ufo flap that had ford uh our former who was it gerald ford who was a okay senator at the time get a hold of people in the air force and they sent Heineck out here for yeah, project Heineck, blue book right. yeah. and they shot everybody down swamp that's gas okay. yep it and it devastated people here because yeah. this was going on for two weeks you had so many witnesses talking about these saucer shaped craft and glowing orbs and everything that were going on and we're we're just absolutely uh dominating the sky and police officers had seen it and you know talked about it and then you know Heineck's basically telling them well you know and then eventually Heineck switched his Correct. position Correct. so um right. he was basically told to shut down that investigation but that is really interesting that this was going on at that same time oh, oh definitely and uh, here's the actual uh, index card so you can verify it here. You can see the date. Here's the time. Uh, here's the you know very brief description of it. And this is the actual Project Blue Book index card. So then I did, dug a little bit further and I found the newspaper clipping, the Daily Oklahoma, March 1st, 1971. Oh, wow. Here is, here is Eddie Laxon himself. That's the man that we're talking about. And here's their sketch of the craft. And the headline is Object Sighting Now Rude. So when he came forward to discuss this, he got phone calls, he got messages, he got people bothering him, you know, calls from France in the middle of the night. And the bottom line is he regretted ever even talking about this. I mean, it, it almost ruined his life. And so what that does is it actually works in his favor because it adds more credibility to the case. It, it actually provides more evidence because he just said, you know what, I, I regret even talking about this. So 
it actually adds more. Now, he had some very interesting statements. We're only going to cover one here, but I'll fast forward now. And this is his quote. What I saw was definitely not from space. The man was wearing fatigues and had a cap with the bill broken up like Air Force mechanics wear Lex and said it had common English letters on it. So again, it's looking more and more like a man-made technology. And so then I just came up with the fact that we should all consider very carefully the tremendous implications about what that statement really means. So what what do you think then about the 1963 craft there? Is that man-made then? Or I'm thinking well, not. Here, you know, this is, uh, that's kind of the debate, right? Yeah. Just how far did they get? Now, the gentleman that I spoke to, um, he, when he interviewed this Marine, he asked that very question that you're asking. Like, how far did we get? What did we learn? And his exact words were, not very much. Now, again, this is a long time ago. We're talking over 50 years ago. Now, they may have learned something a lot more. They probably have. But at that time, he didn't feel that they learned too much. Now, they could have learned something from the other crash retrievals. But back to the uh, 66 case, that looks like good old-fashioned American ingenuity was involved. That's what it looks like to me. And maybe they were able to make some type of a breakthrough with a crash retrieval and they integrated that technology into the craft. But again, it's hard to go down that road because we really need that physical evidence. But when you take all these cases together at a whole, not, not all these people are lying. They're just not. All, they, they just can't all be lying. And so we really do have something here. We really do. Yeah. Well, and it's looking at whether or not the U.S. was trying to replicate or whatever country was trying to replicate replicate something that they had previously Correct. found. That's so right. question for you, Michael, going back to the 63, just for a moment, what sure. month was it that that it was Marine? De December 1963. Okay. Because just wondering, because uh, JFK was assassinated November 22nd. Correct. Of Correct. 63. And just doing a little bit of digging, have you looked into that alleged CIA document that was top secret that got unveiled when Lester was putting his book together? Are you um, talking about the one with Marilyn Monroe or no? No, I'm talking about the classification review for the UFO intelligence and sharing data with NASA. No, I guess I'm not aware of that. Okay. Might have to send this to you. Okay. Yeah, I see a. She's got a document pulled up here doing her own little research, and then I see some redacted stuff on there. So, must be good. Yeah, look at that. The the bottom of the page is all black. Well, it's completely blacked out, but it's no, but it's ten days prior to his assassination. Mm -hmm. And it's about UFOs. It's about UFOs and sharing data with NASA. Okay. okay. Wow. Wow. What? Uh, I can't see it from here. Michelle, can you tell him like the date on the document, the name of it? Um, date on the document is November 12th, 1963 um, from JFK. I mean, the, the question is, um, they've asked if, is this document even real? Okay. Um, but he was asking for an interim report of the data review no later than February 1st of 1964. Hmm. So this was JFK asking them about ufos the so he had CIA. knowledge okay yeah. so if this if this document is true yeah if it's real if it's if the real, real yeah is that 
JFK memo to the CIA about UFOs real. That's the name of the article on NBC News, it looks like. Okay. Um, then that definitely, there's your link to Kennedy and UFOs, if that's true. I mean, he was inquisitive enough to contact yeah. the intelligence community. So, yes. But like I always like to say, and I've heard other people say it now too, you know, a, uh, a uh, president is a temporary employee. You know, exactly. the ones that the ones that really matter are those old grizzled guys that are there for life. Right. Lord, <laughs> you got that right. Lord, you got that right. That's exactly correct. I sent it to you through Facebook Messenger, Michael. <laughs> okay. Thank you. Great. Excellent. Yeah. So where do you want to jump to next? I mean, oh sure, no problem. Why don't we go? Let's skip over here and uh, I'm gonna head over to this case right here. So this is February 3rd, 1983. Uh, this is Mobile, Alabama. Primary eyewitness is driving down the road. It's about 9 p.m. at night. She had just finished a dinner engagement. She's heading back to Mobile, Alabama. And she just notices this big boom noise and her car starts shaking. So she pulls off to the side of the road. She gets out of the vehicle. She looks under the uh, car thinking the transmission may have fallen out or something, but that seemed to be okay. She gets back in the car. She drives another half mile down the road and off to the right, she sees this lighted clearing area and she's looking at this very unusual craft that's about 210 feet long. It's 80 feet tall. It has kind of a spherical forward section and then a tapering wedding cake as it basically tapers back toward the aft end of the craft. Now we'll start at the top here. She said that there was a transparent wraparound section that included basically the forward one third of the craft and behind these transparent glass windows, she said that she could see what looked like five foot 10 humanoid looking beings that were wearing a one piece tight fitting flight suit. And they were walking around in this antiseptically sterile environment. Now below that, there was another transparent section that wrapped around almost the exact one third of the craft. Below that, there was a series of these porthole windows. And she said that she was low enough to look through these porthole windows from one side all the way through the craft to the other side and outside the other portion of the craft itself. And looking through these porthole windows, she described the interior as resembling kind of like an East Coast warship dry dock with bulkheads and stringers. It was a very mechanical interior. It reminded, you know, like laying the keel of the, of the Titanic and then starting to put in the bulkheads and everything. That's what she said that this thing looked like because she got a good view inside. The whole thing had rivets on the outside of it too, like something you'd find on the Golden Gate Bridge. All these rivets were fastening the exterior skin to this craft itself. Now, below this second group of uh, forward porthole circular windows, she said what looked like six foot by six foot sandbox and protruding out of this sandbox, you can kind of see it here, were these cylindrical devices that were about eight feet long that looked like guns, but she didn't think they were guns. Now, there was a door closing from right to left and on the left-hand wall, it was completely composed of these tubes, pipes, and cylinders, which we've heard about many times before. Now, on the bottom of this craft, there were two transparent gondolas with the same five foot 10 humanoid looking beings. And on the, on the top lip of these transparent gondolas, there were multiple 12 inch by 12 inch highly polished mirror reflective devices that were in the form of a cross. So this is February 3rd, 1983. 
we'll move ahead to the second illustration that shows you this door closing from right to left. And so she's watching all this. And the way to verify this, I've got the original sketch. Here's the original sketch. The source here is actual bulletin, volume 32, number two, 1984, so that people can verify this on their own. Wow. It's a good case. It's a good case. Now, I mean, I think it's is it a starliner? I mean, yeah, I know. <laughs> that, that's I what know. goes through my head. It's like, <laughs> That's yep. the first thing I thought. I'm like, this is the it's a cruise know, ship. It's That's the cruise it. ship of the of the sky. You got it. You got oh it. my gosh. Okay, so and my next question is gonna be yeah. it's gonna be what's the co corroborating evidence for this? Well, okay, the corroborating the evidence is the, is the pattern recognition of the interior components. Okay, so if we if you look in this drawing here, you can see this wall with the tubes, pipes, and cylinders on it. That's almost identical that was described in the Hudson Valley Boomerang, in the Southern Illinois Triangle, even in the Belgium Triangle. They all describe these pipes and tubes and cylinders and silencers. Some of these witnesses, they described it looking like a Midas muffler shop is the way they describe it. So I've got about 15 cases of these bottom understructure of these craft having these pipes and cylinders, almost like a liquid nitrogen cooling apparatus. That's what it's looking like to me. But yeah, this, I, the supporting documentation and evidence is the other cases that have the same understructure. Okay, man, that's uh, yeah. It's, now it's the back awful. end of that was that like a propulsion or a light system? I don't think she knew. I don't think she okay. now there was lights shining, you know, forward and above here as this thing flew away. Um, I don't know exactly if she got a view of the, the total back end of it, but this is what the craft looked like. Mm -hmm. Okay. How yep. long was the craft staying around and when it left, did it do total, one of those? Total time like, sighting about, about 10 minutes, about 10 minutes. Yep. Okay. Yeah, it's it's in the APRO report. They describe it. And, and did uh, it, did it take off at like a, uh, like hypersonic speed? Was it nope. like instant nope. or? Nope, it, it left at a, at, a, at a slow pace. It kind of went obscured behind the trees and that one. And she could see the lights still illuminating the local area as it, as it departed. So, mm -hmm. okay. And we can cover this case here really quickly. Uh, this is USS FDR, November 1958, Guantanamo Bay, Cuba. And I actually spoke to the witness who was involved in this. He's passed away now. And what's interesting about this is the USS FDR had a history of USO and USO sightings. So not only just UFO sightings, but unidentified submerged object sighting as well. And it's been stated that the reason why the USS FDR had so many of these sightings is because it was the first aircraft carrier to carry nuclear weapons on board. So that might be the reason why this aircraft carrier had a, a huge history of this. It had a legacy behind it. All right, so time frame here is about 9 p.m. They're on a shakedown cruise. They're near Guantanamo Bay, Cuba. And all of a sudden, and this is at night, there was screaming and yelling and swearing. And there was a chaotic situation. All of these naval personnel were, were trying to climb up ladders and scurry up these ladders to get to the flight deck. Now you see the flight deck here kind of empty near the, the back of it. But they were trying to get up to the flight deck because something was going on. There was a yellowish light approaching the aircraft carrier. And when it got in the vicinity of where the aircraft carrier was, and I'm gonna move ahead here, 
you can see the original sketch. This was filed uh, August 8th, 1978 by Chester Grzynski. He was one of the naval personnel there. This is his original sketch. And you can see what they actually saw. There were 25 naval personnel on the flight deck. They actually saw a 200 foot long cigar shaped craft that had these rectangular cutout windows. And then in back of these transparent windows, there were these humanoid looking beings that were walking back and forth behind the windows. And he said that this craft was emanating heat off of it and they could feel it radiating on their face. So right off the bat, it's a CE2 case and it's a CE3 case. Now I'll move forward here. Now I'll give you the JPEGs for all this. Here is his original sketch. One of these beings kind of moved his face onto this glass window and was looking at the naval personnel back down on the flight deck on the aircraft here. He raised his hand above his head and was waving to the guys below on the flight deck, actually waving to these guys below. So we took all this information from the report from the two articles written in something called the Flat Top Newsletter. So that's two sources, plus the newspaper articles, that's three sources, and his five-page report. So at least four sources, plus the other 24 witnesses who were there with him. So it's a pretty good solid case. Took all that information together, and I commissioned uh, Tom Bogan, good friend of mine, to do the color version of this, and here's what, uh, here's what he came up with. So here's the, the craft itself just hovering over the flight deck of the USS FDR. So were these things trying to be seen or do they not? I mean, I'm, I'm trying to like put together, why would these things come up so close? And, and right. even in like the 2004 case, it's like, yep. why would they want to engage? It's, it's almost like they're playing around or here. Or, or they don't even well, realize we're around. It's, it's definitely purposeful because the primary eyewitness said that he could see one of the beings raised his hand above his head like he was waved. So it's definitely on purpose. This is not yeah. an accident. Not an accident. Now I'm going to move forward here and I'm going to give you an enlargement. There's the enlargement. Wow. Now, Michael, what was the, there was a stamp on that previous sketch sure. drawing of Detroit with a reference to Detroit, Michigan. Uh, let's see here. Yeah, that's that's the primary eyewitness. That's his address. <laughs> that's his address. Oh, yeah, that's the primary okay. eyewitness. He he passed away. I spoke to him on the phone once, and uh, he he was involved in at least two newspaper clippings that talked about this. Two articles that mentioned this specifically. Okay. There's no telling how many cases the USS FDR was involved in. Now he concluded his report with the fact that when when this sighting was over. The intelligence community came on board the aircraft carrier and they seized the logbooks and the radar tapes. And the, the excuse that they used to come on board was quote unquote gambling below decks. That's the excuse they used. Have you been able to get in touch with any of the other men that were on the crew? Nope. Nope. I don't know the their deck? names. Only, mm -hmm. only him. Only him. Yep. Only him. And wow. so it's important. Well, there's definitely something going on with the oceans because sure. you oh, know, yeah. that, that's how Fravor and Dietrich first spotted the Tic Tac was a huge disturbance under the water. And they thought they were going to a, a plane crash. Yep. And then they could see the Tic Tac zipping around doing weird things. Yeah. I mean, USO cases actually make up 51% of this phenomenon and it's almost never even talked about. So that's where to really put the focus of attention on. Yeah, I was talking to, um, in our season finale of 
season one, episode 25 of our podcast, I was talking to, or we were talking to Chris Lato, who's a retired F-16 fighter pilot and has gotten highly involved now in the study of UAPs. He's never seen one, um, but he's, he's very interested. And we talked to him and I said, you know, What's interesting is, and I understand why people focus on the Tic Tac because there was this engagement and then we, they, they got the, the FLIR one video and, you know, when the other flight went out to try to intercept them, but what was going on in the water? Mm -hmm. There was something going on there. Now, was it being created by the Tic Tac or was there something there? Because these USOs my understanding is that there's information, there's there's sonar information out there about these things. And not only that, uh, Chris Lato was talking about uh, triangular craft coming. They got pictures or video of a large triangular craft coming out of the ocean somehow. I don't doubt it. And what I like to highlight is um, for anyone who is skeptical about the subject matter, uh, maybe someone is on the fence. Maybe they're skeptical. If you if you read a book called Invisible Residence by Ivan T. Sanderson, and you read it with an open mind objectively, you cannot walk away thinking there's nothing to this because it's literally case after case and historical accounts of these USOs from all around the world. A lot of these are U.S. Navy cases. There's cases of uh, Japanese fishing trawlers that pick these things up on their nets. That's talked about. That's happened multiple times before. Craft that looked like bullets popping out of 37 feet of solid ice and going into, into space. This is back in 1955. Those have been documented. And when you put this all together, you, you just can't read this book and think, oh, there's nothing to this. Yeah. Michael, in all of your research, what have you, and if you've stumbled upon anything with the triangular crafts? Oh, sure. Yeah, uh, definitely. David Marler is the world premier researcher on the triangular craft. But again, those have been seen. He's got cases going back to the 1800s. So even those have been seen long prior to uh, June 24th, 1947 with Kenneth Arnold. This entire phenomenon dates back so much earlier than I think we all realize. Yeah, we've actually reached out to uh, David Marler. So we are actually trying to get him on the show okay. because yeah. we're back from him because of our, our experience, you know, we're both educators we've never seen a UFO before until March, uh, March 9th of 2018, we are driving okay. home okay. two 30 in the morning. And here is this perfect equilateral triangle hovering above the road, three lights in each angle. And it was these lights were bright. I thought it was an aircraft going into Detroit Metro and it was going to crash. Like it, yeah. it's, it's 10 miles off course. It's not supposed to be there. Right. And right. this thing was basically hovering or moving at a snail's pace. And then we're watching it. Her response to me was mm-hmm. when did our military get something like this? It rotated as I was gunning it to get away from it. I did not have a good feeling about what this thing was. And I'm going up around onto the expressway and trying to head south. And the thing rotated. It it didn't bank. There was no, no ailerons, no nothing. And this thing was the size of a football field on each side. It had to be 
250 and 300 feet long on each side. And it just rotated to move south parallel with us and was moving along the road. And she could see, how would you describe those lights that were in the back? There were at least two, three like red rectangular lights on the back, but yeah. there was there was no sound no yeah. propulsion no nothing that you know looked like heat coming off of it and it was extremely just it quiet yeah it, it, it was the, the it lights was eerie. well the lights were you know anything from the street lights because it actually ended up over top of a hotel and restaurant um mm -hmm. in the location that it was in canton michigan and any of the lights from those businesses down below, it absorbed up underneath the underbottom. And it almost looked like if you opened up a computer and you looked at a motherboard. Really? So it was like a yeah. very faint skin, but those lights were recessed up there and none of the lights from the triangle like shed any sort of light down onto the ground. Yeah. Now, Michael, you being wow. a, a GA pilot, you're aware, you know, those landing lights you have on commercial craft let alone even ga craft when those things are on i mean they are projecting light Correct. i mean you know and, and the, the, so these big airliners and pilots can see runways on their way down they can you know make visual approaches this thing it was so bizarre that there were these glowing orbs up and recessed halfway it looked halfway into this bottom of this craft mm -hmm. but you could see them but it was like they were not really projecting light because there was no spotlight down on the ground there was there was no light it, it it's almost like and i heard somebody uh one of the other podcasts we had interviewed a long time ago they did they did like an eight-part series on ufos and the one guy that was researching this says that it seems like their technology they almost have control of like light like how the light can emanate so far like they can that's, make it say okay that's it that's something that's reported like light beams stopping in midair like someone yes. took a butter mm -hmm. knife and chopped it yeah mm -hmm. yes exactly exactly and and like Michelle was saying, the street lights were radiating up on the bottom of this craft, and it was, it was like illuminating this weird skin. But it also looked like if you take a, a lighter and hold it to a piece of metal, and the metal changes color, and then you get that mirage effect of the heat. Oh uh, yeah! It, it was like it was absorbing the street lights from below. But it was still giving us the outline of it. It was really, it, and wow. that's what really set me off. First of all, I was like, we're going to be head on because we were driving toward it. We're going to be in a head on crash with a, a an airliner coming down. It missed Willow Run Airport. It missed uh, Katy, you know, uh, Detroit Metro. It, you know, th this is not good. And then I saw that it was just staying there. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, no. No. And then when we got closer to get on the expressway, I could see how big this thing was. And no, <laughs> wow. Wow. we just, we, we know that other people that night had to have seen it. Yeah. Sure. So we just, we've never been able to run across any stories. We've went out on Facebook, basically, I don't want to say begging and pleading, but for anyone to come forward that night that, you know, saw anything, we reported it to MUFON. Um, 
Yeah, never get received we, any response from MUFA. But yet we've talked to other people in Michigan who have seen, you know, likewise craft north um, along a, a, like the Flint area. So Flint up through what, Port Huron? Yeah. So it, this one object that she's talking about, this was a 1994 um, encounter that happened. It started with a friend of our, uh, the podcast, Ed, he saw it in a place called Port Huron, which was right pretty close to Selfridge Air National Guard base. Okay. He saw this black triangle moving along the road and he's watching it and he could see there were two F-16s that were dispatched full afterburner coming from Selfridge Air National Guard toward this thing. And it was at that point early in the morning, as these things get close, boom, it was gone. It took off once the, the F-16s got there. Then what we didn't realize was one of the very first people we had on the podcast, because we were like, you know what, let's just go out there and talk. Maybe people will come on the podcast because we had this experience. I have no idea what we're doing, what we're talking about. Let's just see what happens. We interview a, a guy from Flint that, and we didn't know this and he didn't know this either. That same morning he saw a triangular craft hovering above the expressway. It was so close. He said he could hit it with a rock. We got these two guys together and they corroborated the evidence that it's, it was over at Port Huron. And yeah. it, when it took off, it went toward the West, toward the Flint area. And this is the same craft that our friend guy had, had witnessed. And it so this was a nighttime sighting, uh, early morning, early morning, okay. early morning. Yeah. And that just, it just blew us away. Like, this is, this is crazy that this, and this was 1994. Wow. Okay. So that's how we got all of this started. This is, this is like why we decided to do this. I mean, I'm a science guy. She's, I'm an English teacher. I, an English I typically te have wow. a, a, a ton of things to grade and do. Yeah. And here yeah. I am. <laughs> and yeah. And this was not something we were. You know, but it blew all of my knowledge of it right out of the water of aeronautics or physics. Yeah, anything these, I learned. These things don't fly, they float. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's the best way to describe it too. Yeah. Okay, awesome. What else do you got for us, Michael? What else do you want to sure, jump into? Sure, we can we can continue on here. Uh this is a good case. May 26, 1979, Calusa, California. Let's do the uh, setup here. So it's about 11.30 p.m. Gentleman is watching TV in his house and all of a sudden the TV goes out. Concurrently, the air conditioning unit goes out. So he walks to the back of the house. He opens up a circuit breaker box. That seemed to be okay. And then the next thing that he noticed is that the hair on his arms, the hair on his chest, the hair on his head, not only starts standing up, but starts crackling. So he was completely encased in the static electrical field. He looks up and he sees this 140-foot diameter dish-shaped craft. And we'll start at the top. It had this vintage lemon squeezer dome on it with these ridges. You've probably seen this before, maybe. The, the strange orange juice squeezer, old school, you could say, with just these ridges on it. Uh, that's what it looked like on top. Now, on the bottom of it, it had these conduit pipes with frayed edges. Now I thought about what's a better way to describe that. And I came up with the fact that they look like ramen noodles. These strange ramen noodles coming down that had frayed edges. 
And then there was these double prongs on either side of the craft near the outer bottom circumference of the craft. Now, he also said that he saw another craft identical in shape, but half the diameter, and it was pulling power off the 500,000 volt power lines, causing them to become cherry red. So it's a CE2 case. Now, just after that, these ramen noodles retracted into the bottom of the craft, and then these double prongs retracted 90% into the bottom of the craft. And the second that happened, two gooseneck lights popped out from the left and right-hand side and were shining down below to his farmland here. Now we'll move ahead. Now, at this point, he starts getting concerned for him and his family. So he goes into the, and this is a drawing of what the craft looked like. This is the newspaper clipping, the Sun Clear of Calusa, California, May 29, 1979. You can see these conduit pipes with the frayed edges. You see these prongs here. We've got the gooseneck light and then a real good view of this rib dome section that looks like one of these vintage lemon squeezers. Now we'll move ahead here. So he goes in, he wakes up his wife, he wakes up his two children, they go to the back window, they open up the blind and they see that large craft flanked on either side by two smaller craft that were half the diameter of the large craft. Now they're pulling power off the 500,000 volt power line causing those to become cherry red. So again, it's a CE2 case. And then he said, that the large craft in the center, and this is back in 1979, went from a dead standstill to over those low rolling hills in the background in this illustration. That's about 25 nautical miles away. It did in less than one second. And then about one second later, it came back to its original position. So it had traversed 50 miles in under two seconds back in 1979. So I thought that was interesting. Now we'll move forward here at this point. He's horrified. He's extremely scared for the safety of his family. So he piles the two kids in there. They still have their pajamas on. The wife piles in the passenger side. They go screaming down the road in the pickup truck, 90 miles an hour. And that large craft starts following them. And it pops over the top of the cab of the vehicle over to the right-hand side, flips back over to the driver's side. And you can see here, San Antonio Express, February 6, 1977, family tells uh, of terror as UFO chase car at 90 miles an hour. And they have a whole article discussing this entire thing. Now, how this ended is they finally get back to the end of the driveway where the neighbor's house was. And they come to a screeching halt. They pile out of the vehicle. They start slamming on the neighbor's door and the two neighbors come out. So you have the original four witnesses plus the two. That's a total of six, which basically sees the tail end of that large craft disappear at a very high rate of speed. And in a nutshell, that's the Calusa, California case. And it also caused a blackout in the vicinity of Calusa, California. Yeah, because I was going to say they would have on record as far as that the electricity being pulled. Correct. Correct. Yep. So there is a it's about a 12 page report from QFOS that uh, described this in just great detail, great detail, multiple witness case. That's wow. That's crazy. And how many uh, like reports did you pull to put this all together like this? Um, the newspaper clippings plus the QFOS that used to be 2457 West Peterson Avenue in Chicago. That's now been all transferred to David Marler's collection in Albuquerque. So uh, the files are still there. They're open, available to everyone, and you can just go through and read the case. And it's about a 12-page report. They, they describe this in detail, but 
what what he's describing with these you can call it these prongs sticking out of the bottom of it i've got at least 15 other cases of these strange prongs or protrusions that come popping out of these craft at least 15 other cases any idea what those prongs would be used for some type of an electrical discharge type device mm -hmm. yep a lot of these are described as looking like if you go to the old photos of San Francisco where they had the trolley car with the electrical pole sticking out yes. in contact with the wires, that's what these things look like. These, oh. these wires sticking out of these craft. Wow. Almost identical to that. Man-made or not? Uh, <laughs> on this one, difficult yeah. to say, but... If you look at the understructure, the prongs, uh, these ramen noodles with the frayed edges, I mean, do, does this look like something, you know, why would they be pulling power off the 500,000, you know, pull? Right. You know, if, if they're so advanced, why do they need all that? Uh, it just, again, it's screaming a man-made technology. Uh, again, difficult to pin it down, but it's just screaming man-made technology. And that, that doesn't describe all of this phenomenon, but it definitely describes some of it. Yeah, so, all right. So as I think about this and I put on my FAA regulations, former right. GA pilot and right. you as well, what, what do you think about these things operating regardless of whose they are, if it's ours or whatever, what's your thoughts on this? Uh, operations over populated civilian areas. I mean, our craft that we saw is uh, working, you know, within 10 miles of the airspace of Detroit Metro Airport, for God's sakes, you know. So what are your thoughts on this, the the airspace intrusion and in, in there maybe being an accident at some point or something happens? Two, two things come to mind. Number one is they're brazen. I think they're doing this because they can. They're brazen. That's one. The other one is that I don't know if they've completely, obviously they perfected the technology enough to where they feel comfortable and safe for flying it over populated areas. That's one thing. But the other thing too is if you go back to the 1966 case that we covered before, it looked like that guy was making repairs on something. So maybe they haven't fully got it down yet. Again, probably they did now, but maybe 55 to 66 timeframe, they were still experimenting with things and they didn't have it all ironed out yet. Cause it, it certainly looked like this guy was making repairs or looking at something. And then when he finally got noticed, he said, oh, I've got to get out of here. And so that's what it looks like. That's what it looks like. Did they see anything, the couple that, um, uh fled with their two kids that they had any problems with like the the truck with that sort of power source and magnetic field being drawn about that's, i mean my my question. brain goes to war of the worlds and just reading and how the the cars didn't start it's like i'm wondering if they had any sort of difficulty getting their vehicles started that's a good question um it doesn't mention that in the report but what he did say is that he was very concerned backing the truck out he didn't want to use the brake lights to bring attention to himself but obviously he did because this thing went chased after him so yeah it's mentioned in the reports about him being very concerned about the brake lights because he couldn't turn the brake lights off so that's something that could have attracted the attention of whatever whoever was flying this thing right now you mentioned about being brazen and that makes me think about 
um, like Fravor talking, I think it was on Joe Rogan, where some of the little games they would play with, exactly. uh, like campers and stuff, right? That they would, you know, pull the engines back, you know, they'd go screaming toward a campsite. And then once they were near a campsite, because they were using IR goggles and, you know, they can see the ground, they would light full afterburners and go straight up and then pull the afterburners off and disappear. And now you got a UFO report. If these are man-made craft, do you think they're trying, you know, these, the pilots or whatever are, are, are playing around with people to create these reports? Well, I'm not the only one who's come up with this, but in some cases, I think that they're trying to paint these things with the alien brush is the best way to describe it. That's perhaps what they're doing. Now, that doesn't describe all the cases because we've got yeah. cases going back to 1492. We've got USO cases going back to 900 years ago. I mean, we're talking very, very early cases. Uh, difficult to document that, but the, these USO cases go back a long time, a long time. So was anyone flying back then? Obviously, a lot of this is pre Wright Brothers, December 17th, 1903. So all yeah. of this can't be described with man-made technology, but some of it certainly can. Wasn't there a, a well, they, I, I don't know if they know exactly what it was about, but wasn't there a Japanese scroll from like medieval Jap Japan that shows a drawing of what could be considered like a, it looks like a UFO. I mean, and it's back from like the 15th or 14th century. Uh, are you talking about that one somewhat famous drawing where it's written vertically and then off to the left they have it? Yeah. yeah. I don't know too much. I, I know what you're talking about, but uh, they could be describing that. They, they absolutely could. I, I'm not sure. But uh, if you go back to the 1897 mystery airship wave, then you go back to 1865. They were, The same craft was seen in 1865. This is long before the Wright brothers. Flew. So again, oh, yeah. this is predating all that. Uh, there's a man-made component to that case as well. But yeah, that's why it's so hard to pin this down. And even Jalen Hynek said that if UFOs were nothing more than extraterrestrial spacecraft, how boring that would be. Even he knew that this was kind of like a multi-headed hydra. And there's no one explanation that describes this whole phenomenon. You can't just put this stuff in a box. I mean, it's it's a multi-tiered, uh, layered event here. Yeah. Now... There was um, talk of an archaeology dig or or digs that had happened at some point, and some people were saying that was a a they had retrieved a craft, mm -hmm. and it was at a a dig site, and they found something. Have you? I know you're into the crash retrievals and looking at. Right. The, have you dug into that? No pun intended. But have you dug into any of those types of stories at all? From what I recall going through the files, I didn't see any archaeological digs regarding crash retrievals. But I have heard that when and if they find something that it's too large to transport, you know, we're talking 300 feet across or something that they can't break down into three equal pie segments, they'll bury it at the site. I heard one report of that. So we probably have one, two, maybe three craft that are just so large that the logistics of trying to transport it would 
just bring way too much attention to it. They just bury it at the site. Yeah. So that, that seems to be at least one protocol. Yeah, that would make sense to me, honestly, because like you said, that would bring attention. Correct. And, you know, with spy satellites and everything else going around, Google Earth taking pictures mm -hmm. all the time and, yep. you know, something would be spotted, I'm sure. Exactly. Exactly. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, let's see. Was there anything else I wanted to ask you? There, there was so much that I wanted to talk to you about on this. Oh, Did you want to jump into another case uh, that yeah, you we looked could, into? Probably, uh, we could probably do one more here. Now we've considered that one. Yeah, we can, we can do one more here. Uh, yeah, let's talk about mystery airship waves. So this is 1897. It actually started in Sacramento, California and moved to San, uh, San Francisco and Oakland, California. Actually took place in 1896, but it's always been known as the 1897 mystery airship wave. So you can see the sighting here. You've got uh, commotion in the streets and the towns. There's people running from one side of the street to the other. There's covered wagons flipped over. There's horses bolting across. And what they're describing is this strange 200 foot long, you could call it craft that looks like it has a gondola on the bottom. There appears to be some type of airbag on top. There's a wing on either side. There's a what looks like a rudder in the back. And then a lot of these witnesses reported that these streams, and there are thousands of newspaper clippings to support the 1890, they're across the country. A lot of people said that they heard laughter coming from these craft. They saw big black dogs on the decks of these craft. That's been reported. They heard laughter coming from these craft. In some cases, anchors were lowered from these craft. And a lot of witnesses said that they could see what looked like well-dressed, eccentric inventor types with black top hats that are on the decks of these craft. This is back in 1897. <laughs> Uh, here's some of the original drawings of what these uh, craft look like. And you can see these beaming spotlights. So whoever was flying these things had the technology for some type of power source where they have these tremendous beaming spotlights. Uh, here's some of the bullet items here. Object cast down brilliant beams of light on the city below. Object uh, described as the craft is 150 feet in length with four rotor-like arms. In some cases, anchors attached to ropes were dropped from the mysterious craft and laughter could be heard originating from the interior. Uh, newspaper clippings, Record Union, November 23rd, 1896, where they talk about this here, the strange visitors seen there on Saturday evening. Here's a blow up here. And what I wanted to mention, in some rare cases, these craft landed and witnesses ran up to these craft and actually saw the quote unquote pilots. And you'll never guess what they described seeing. They said that whoever was flying these, they were wearing smoke colored glasses. That's how they describe it. We actually have that within the newspaper clippings, they were wearing smoke colored glasses. So to me, this is not an extraterrestrial spacecraft. This is a somewhat you could call it a, a very eccentric group of inventors that were flying out of Sonora, California, something called the Sonoma Aero Club. Uh, they were financed by a secretive group in New York that came back and stemmed back from Germany. It's a whole long story, but I just don't think we're looking at an at a extraterrestrial technology here. If they're wearing smoke colored glasses and they're dropping anchors down. 
Now, and if this is the craft, and if this is exactly how the, the craft was described as far as how it looked, then this would explain why any sort of airship craft in the 70s with steampunk ended Correct. up looking like this as well. Because as soon as you show the picture, I'm like, that's steampunk to me. Oh, yeah. I'm, right. I'm thinking top hats and gears and, oh yeah, oh, you yeah. know, all well, of the that. Top, the top hats oh, yeah. and the glasses were a dead giveaway, too. But oh, yeah. then the description of the, the airship. And, and this is in, you know, very well described in the newspaper clippings. They said that they were these well-dressed looking men in these uh, very nicely groomed suits. They had top hats on. There were dogs on the deck of these ships. And in some cases, they were dropping envelopes to people below. And when people open up the envelope, it said, quote unquote, we discovered a new mode of transportation that will make every other mode of transportation completely obsolete. In a nutshell, that's what they were describing. They, they figured out some new way of locomotion is what they were saying in the letters. So again, it's just another confirming fact that we're looking at a man-made technology here. I don't think this is an extraterrestrial spacecraft. Now, uh, just jumping back to our story with the, the triangle for a minute, mm -hmm. every time we talk about it, we always have the people that want to jump in and say, that's the TR-3B, that's the TR-3B, yada, yada. And from my research and what I found about the TR-3B, it, it's not a legitimate craft. The, the, the prints, to me, seem kind of ridiculous I, I i don't the patents i'm talking about because mm -hmm. i looked at those and from what i understand too the tr3b is not supposed to be a, a football length in size it's like more like a fighter craft that i i could understand okay have you dug have you dug into the tr3b at all well right now i'm uh, basically focusing on my, on my historical cases and, and that's where i'm gonna keep my attention now yeah okay mm -hmm. yeah yeah, that makes sense. I was just wondering if if that was something you dug into at all. But, you know, what's amazing about this ship, and I see there's like a name plaque on it. What is that? The SS Sonora? Sonora? SS Sonora, yeah. Because yeah, wow. that's where the flight tests were conducted in Sonora, Northern California. It's, it's just, it's amazing to see this drawing and and not think that people from the the right now are are relating some kind of a fantastical story but this was actually back in the 1800s correct correct that's amazing mm -hmm. yep mm -hmm. you would have to have one heck of imagination for a lot of people in in an area to come up with this description to end up with a craft like that that's that's amazing yeah this is this is what they describe the, the wow. anchor is mentioned multiple times, multiple times, where the, they were dropping anchors uh, and now, then dropping letters, too. Yeah. So now some people will say that these craft have happened or these visitations and things have happened over millennia on this planet. And these things have a way of projecting. So... Like this might have been a real, like maybe a a triangle type of craft, but it's viewed as this type of craft, a a boat with an anchor, 
and that these creatures or this technology can get into your head and create a craft that your mind can actually handle. Because if you actually saw what it was, you would have no, your brain would not be able to handle it. What are your thoughts on, on that kind of a situation? Um, best way I would describe that is looking at the prehistory cases, going back to the David Marler collection. A lot of people talk about the triangles and it's kind of in fashion now, but David will tell you that he's got cases going back to the 1800s where okay. people are also witnessing triangles in the 1800s. So this is just still going so much further back. Um, and I know they like to try to rebrand things. They go yeah. from UFO to UAP, and they always like to say that nothing prior to 2004 existed. Well, that can't be true because we've got thousands of historical cases that will not go away. So that cannot be explained away. Plus, you've got the 1897 mystery airship. They, they can't explain that away easily. But uh, it, these historic cases will, will remain. They will remain. Awesome. Uh, well, we're running out of time here. And before okay. we let you go, yep. uh, do you want to tell us a little bit about what you have going on, uh, how people sure. can find you on the web and any, sure. you know, your book that you wrote? Uh, I have a YouTube channel called Blue Room Media, and I do about two or three posts per week. And it's just part of the historical archives that I have basically put together over the last 30 years, going to universities, archives, personal collections, uh, MUFON, QFOS, uh, David Marler collection, and pulling like the best cases and then commissioning full color artwork to make these cases come alive. And that's the focus of this YouTube channel. It's called Blue Room Media. So that's one. The second thing is that I do have a new book. It's called Dark Files, A Pictorial History of Lost, Forgotten, and Obscure UFO Encounters. And it includes 61 of the best cases within the collection. And we've, we've talked about four or five of them here. Those are included in this as well. And it's all fully illustrated and it's all fully referenced. Awesome. Any appearances or anything coming up in the uh, future? I got the MUFON Symposium coming up in Denver. That's in July. So that'll be the, the next uh, event. And by the way, the Master of Ceremonies, Sev Tak, was just on our show not too long ago. So okay. that's, that's pretty cool. All right, Michael. Well, you know, this has been awesome to talk to you. This is a great historical walkthrough of the UFO phenomenon and your take on it and the the information that you've put forward is it's just just awesome and i'm so happy that you were able to be our season two opener guest i guess is what we could call it um but yeah this has been great so um we want to thank you very much for joining us and i guess say good night thank you good to be with you i appreciate it Thank you. Thank you, Michael. Thanks. Yep. You have been listening to the Michigan UFO Sightings and Paranormal Encounters podcast. You can reach us at mi.ufo.podcast at gmail.com. You can also find us on Twitter at mi underscore UFO and join our Facebook group by searching for Michigan UFO sightings and paranormal encounters. So until next time.